Hello, everyone. You're listening to Lawrence University Asian American Studies podcast. I'm Sophie. I'm Anna. I'm Danny. And today we'll be discussing racialized sexualization, labor, and human trafficking. Today we'll be interviewing Dr. Marcy Quezon to help facilitate our discussion and answer our questions concerning today's topics. Professor Quezon is an assistant professor of gender studies at Lawrence University. She's taught classes on globalization, migration, physical appearance, and women in politics. Her research focuses on how universities, NGOs, and nonprofit organizations navigate political economic systems that simultaneously empower and constrain their work. Her dissertation project examines how Philippine anti-trafficking NGOs build legitimacy through effective narratives and the circulation of emotion. So just to start off, Professor, can you tell us a little bit about your career trajectory and how you ended up at Lawrence? Um, That's a really good question. Um, I actually um, had a career before becoming a professor. Um, After I graduated college, I was a domestic violence survivor advocate for um, actually eight years. Um, And then I decided that I think it was time for me to try something else. So I went to grad school and wanted to learn more about uh, nonprofit organizations, which essentially was, you know, my job previously, and now I'm here. Wonderful. Can you tell us a bit more about your educational background and how you decided what you wanted to study? Oh, um, so actually, I um, started out as a bio major, which is a funny joke now that I think about it. Um, And then I ended up taking some political science classes and gender studies classes, and I really enjoyed them and became really passionate about it. And then I um, decided that those were going to be my majors. Um, I think that uh, I like, I loved my experiences uh, being an advocate and I really had a good, really, really good experience in that career. But I, at a certain point, I felt like I wanted to first, you know, explore and do other things for a while. Uh, And especially because I've had a lot of ideas about, um, well, basically, feminism. And I had um, a lot of the things that I learned in uh, in college, I was actually implementing on in daily life, but I felt like I needed to learn more. So that's why I decided to go back to grad school. I wasn't really even sure that I was going to be an academic, but um, I ended up deciding that this is where I was going to be. That's awesome. Super cool. So going based off of like all your education. Could you give us some information about all the research you've done? (laughs) I've done quite a bit of, I've actually done quite a bit of research. Now I have to think really hard about all of this. So um, my, some of my first projects were actually on Twitter and I did a little bit of research Mm. on um, student activism and how students use Twitter in order and Facebook to mobilize um, around the issues of sexual assault on college campuses. Um, And then that actually turned into something larger in which I was on a research team, the Harlan Harlan Sexual Assault Prevention Project. Um, Short, we call it short for Harlan. And we ended up, doing research on how to prevent uh, sexual assault on college campuses. 
Um, and my dissertation research actually was um, about how non-governmental organizations in the Philippines um, act, work with human trafficking survivors. And it ended up, mm. I ended up actually learning more about how uh, non-governmental organizations work. Um, so in the sense of, which is funny because my original research was about human trafficking and mm -hmm. to some extent is, but it actually is um, about how NGOs use emotions in order to compel folks to do things that um, that they need. So, for example, to support the organization financially, do volunteer work, and even to some extent um, uh, have folks um, that are being helped by the organization stay invested in the organization. Awesome. That's wonderful. You mentioned like becoming very passionate about your research, like after being in college for a while, do you, does, is there any like personal connection? Does your research interest connect to your personal life or things you, you're like personally invested in? Um, I mean, yes, <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, um, I will say that in terms of human trafficking research, it was um, actually part of it was because I was working with uh, human trafficking survivors in my last job. So I, like I said, I was a domestic violence survivor advocate, but I actually was at an organization that got a grant to help uh, human trafficking survivors. And after that experience, I had a lot of questions about mm -hmm. how we handle human trafficking in America. So that kind of led me to my project as well. And of course, um, my background, I'm Filipino American. I was born in mm -hmm. the States, but my parents, my grandparents, Filipino. And what I'd actually, uh, in this like one uh, like organization, what I found was we were helping Filipino uh, labor migrants and my parents were labor, uh, migrated for labor. Um, so I was just curious about, okay, so this is happening now um, where folks are being exploited in labor migrant situations, then uh, what was the difference? What, why is this occurring uh, when my, you know, my parents had a very different, uh, a very different experience migrating mm -hmm. to America. So I would say that my interest in kind of human trafficking started from my background um, in my research, uh, my, you know, my background um, doing advocacy work. And then also because, of course, like I felt invested in learning more. So, yeah, you mentioned being Filipino. One of the topics that we discussed in our Asian American studies class is how people of Asian descent navigate their identity and experiences in the U.S., do you have anything to say about how like your identity as a Filipino woman like affects your experiences um, like day to day? I mean, I can think about like educational experiences, right? Like the whole reason I was really honored to be able to kind of become a professor in the first place was because I literally had no Filipino teachers like until <laughs> I was in my first year of grad school. Like, can you imagine K through 12, four years of college, literally no Filipino professors. I had maybe one Asian American, prof no, actually uh, before that, yeah, I had like one Asian American professor and, and mm -hmm. that was in uh, political science. I um, previous, like in grad school, I had more Asian American professors, but, um, but seriously, I didn't really have anybody who looked like me um, in the classroom. And part of me really, 
being like able to do this was being able to be an uh, Asian American woman, a Filipino woman in the classroom. And now there's lots of, there are like lots of Filipino academics doing amazing work here um, at Lawrence and then also in other institutions. But I just felt like it would be great in order to be here and to be able to represent something larger than myself. Um, and then also when I was at my last institution, you know, where I graduated, I was actually frequently the only uh, Asian professor, but also the only Filipino American professor some students had on that campus. So um, it was just, it kind of drove me to kind of keep going in, um, in this industry. So like every day, I feel like it does impact the way that I approach my teaching and my research, because I do know that part of it is being able to actually be here because sometimes, um, those sometimes people, I guess, for lack of a better term, don't think that we're here, but we are here. Mm -hmm. So also, huh? I, I think that education is really important to me because not only am I'm a Filipino American uh, a woman, I'm also a, I also identify as neurodivergent, right? And I do remember going through school and always feeling kind of like a failure. Um, because I could not, like it was, school is not intuitive or easy for me. None of this mm -hmm. is easy. And I can't say it's easy for anybody, but in particular, it just felt really frustrating where, you know, I remember being in the classroom and just trying to will myself to understand or pay attention. Or I like, for example, like I would always do terrible in spelling tests when I was in middle school, right? Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, I was supposed to be good at math, but constantly unable to like turn in something that didn't have small mistakes, right? Um, and part of that journey was like, oh, well, um, I felt very much like I, for some reason, like I was a failure, I was not good enough. And I, what I had actually started to learn over time was, well, yeah, because there's this thing called the model, model minority, right? And you want, and you have this expectation that you're supposed to be in school and you're supposed to achieve and to do all those things, but, uh, is it okay if I cuss because I'm about to cuss? Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fucked though, <laughs> right? Like, it is. Because it's really fucked because, you know, at, I like people deserve to be human beings, right? You, mm -hmm. um, The model minority is an aspiration that no one can truly achieve. But by not being able to kind of excel academically, um, I felt like such a failure. And that was really rooted in a racial identity situation. I was supposed to be mm -hmm. better than that. And I had to be better. Um, you know, over time, like I started first off, um, like I was lucky and I actually got, uh, I actually was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder pretty early um, in comparison to many other folks. Cause I think, especially with women, they aren't diagnosed much later in general. So I was lucky that I was able to get, you know, diagnosed early, mm -hmm. but I just, as, as kind of that convergence between those two things, like it, it really did affect, profoundly affect how I saw myself. So having the kind of the intersection of being like, you know, having a disability, but also being Asian, like there's a penalty for being a dumb Asian, right? Like um, mm. people treat you in much, I, there's just, when you don't live up to that expectation, there's just a heavier penalty. Mm -hmm. I yeah, that's thank you for sharing. I I also um, am neurodivergent, but um, uh, I can't imagine like being in school and being held to like a high expectation at the same time. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing. That's that's really powerful stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's a really um, 
a really important story. And also I do like that you mentioned how um, women are often diagnosed way later in life, because I know a lot of people and myself who like had to wait until turning 18 or until like getting into high school and not understanding anything to really figure out like what was going on. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, and Um, absolutely. Because also as you get older, people are like, well, shouldn't you have grown out of that by now? Or um, a lot of also gendered expectations in my opinion are really just hell for if you're neurodivergent, right? Like you're supposed to be able to do things like cook and clean. Like I can't, mm. I can't even yeah. with housework. I mean, oh. <laughs> it's an ADHD fucking nightmare. So like being able to like also feel like you're not also being kind of be, have, excelling to the gendered expectations of keeping it together. Uh, there's just mm. a lot of convergence of all of those issues in mind. So I don't know if you've had that experience or felt those. Felt those it's things. really the small stuff. It's like, Doing more than two dishes can't takes you down. Oh yeah, <laughs> always. Yeah, keeping a yeah. room in order, awful. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to spell the word appointment in one of oh. my emails earlier—that was too tough for me. <laughs> oh god, no! There are too many P's. Oh my god. So one of the topics that we discussed in class was a podcast that um, features Eve Tong Nguyen, who was interviewed after the Atlanta spa shootings in 2021. Nguyen works with Red Canary Song, a group that identifies themselves as a grassroots collective of Asian migrant sex workers and allies who push for migrant justice, labor rights, and full decriminalization of sex work. We saw online that you were part of the Heartland Sexual Assault Policies and Prevention on Campuses project and that you've done work related to human trafficking. Can you talk to us about human trafficking and the factors that push people into exploitative uh, labor situations? What kind of work or policies would be helpful in addressing these issues in your opinion? So actually we were just talking about this when I was teaching in my last class. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm glad we're talking about it now. Um, When it comes down to it, I'm glad that you were able to actually um, read and learn more from um, things that were produced by Red Canary Song, um, especially because um, first, you know, organizations like Red Canary Song and uh, Butterfly that's out in uh, that's out in Canada are really led by uh, sex workers, and um, don't, and you can definitely see the difference between organizations that are led by the folks that. Um, they are purporting to help and then the folks and then you see kind of organizations that aren't necessarily um, led by those folks. Um, and I'm not just not to say that organizations that are not survivor led or that are not work, uh, led by sex workers, depending on the focus is bad, but you could definitely mm-hmm. see you can definitely see the difference in the ways that they address they address things right um in terms of policy i think that um also full disclosure i also used to um also volunteer for a sex worker rights organization as well um but uh i think that full decriminalization is really important especially because criminalization of sex work ends up creating a creating an environment that makes uh, migrant sex workers um, really precarious, the labor precarious, because first off, it leads to the stigmatization of sex work in general. Um, and then kind of this, um, kind of this hesitance to be able to like reach out for help. Um, but also, um, you know, 
justice systems if things are criminalized um, can also like empower the police to harass sex workers, right? So um, instead of the idea of legalization, which would be like, okay, so let's, uh, you know, sex work is legal, but under only these conditions, under these licenses, mm -hmm. only in these areas, which they've actually found, even if it is quote unquote legal, there are still folks who can't necessarily meet all those standards. So yeah. you then have just, again, a stratification of who can do sex work, who can't, who's getting criminalized for it. And you see that um, women of color being criminalized uh, for, you know, doing sexual labor. So in terms of that, I would say like uh, the ways that sex, uh, like sex work is um, the way that we approach sex work in the law um, is really been detrimental, right? And it does actually create kind of um, a push factor into exploitative labor situations because, um, especially if you're a migrant worker, um, and, and and this is not just necessarily exclusive for just sexual labor, but if you're a migrant worker and the more barriers that are put between you in order to help you navigate outside of if you want to leave that labor exploitation situation, right, um, giving you options, right? So, for example, the, the more we have... Um, more barriers to legal entry to any country, right? The harder it is for somebody who does come in as a migrant worker, right? And even if you are, even if you have the right papers, right? If you are in a country that makes it difficult to stay there, um, your, uh, your employer has way more power over you, right? If you, for example, let's say you're on an H-1B visa, but your, uh, your employer is threatening your visa if, unless you do X, Y, or Z, um, mm -hmm. you, you are immediately more precarious. So I guess my take home is whether, depend, whatever labor you're talking about, having sensible, uh, sensible policies about immigration that aren't draconian, um, that's in one. D mm -hmm. And then I would say um, the decriminalization of sex work is also helpful, right? Especially because in my kind of, in my opinion, the de uh, the criminalization of sex work is inherently tied to the, uh, to Asian, uh, to Asian women, right? The perception that Asian women are hypersexual or the fact that uh, sex work has been also, uh, has also been attributed to, you know, women of color, but particularly we're talking about Asian women here. Um, mm -hmm. That means that the liberation of Asian women is tied to the liberation of sex workers. So- yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say um, on the topic of like decriminalization versus legalization, um, they talk about a lot in the podcast about um, the legalization aspect requiring paperwork, oftentimes like a registry of sex workers. And that involves like a lot of stigma and shame for most people who engage in sex work. Um, like having your name on an official government document saying this person is a sex worker isn't what they want and isn't going to be helpful to anyone. Um, but I think that like the decriminalization being really central to a lot of uh, liberation movements for sex workers and migrant workers and Asian women is really important. Mm -hmm, for sure, for sure. and. Especially because of like the way that um, our society uh, stigmatizes sex work, like it, trying to move into a different industry or different type of labor um, is so difficult if you have that, if you have something like that run uh, on your record or 
even still like, you know, especially since the advent of, you know, cam work or even of like OnlyFans, the fact that people are discriminating against the fact that maybe you have an OnlyFans or maybe you're doing cam work and then you lose your civvy job is just horrendous, right? Um, just because you're doing one type of labor means you, uh, you're getting going to get stigmatized when you try to do another. Um, and, you know, it's just, it just creates so much precarity um, around in, in so many people's lives. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I work at a homeless shelter at home, uh, like full-time when I'm home. And that's like a big thing that we like focus on is like trying to decrease the stigma around um, the things that people need to do to get by mm-hmm. and how it really puts a, like a big um, chunk of our community at really high risk for domestic violence, interpersonal violence, and um, things like that, just because of like such heavy stigmas around sex work that these um, people can't find other jobs or can't um, support themselves in other ways because of the things that um, they've like had to do at their like lowest financially or personally. Yeah. And, you know, and it's a a, very much a legitimate form of labor. And honestly, sex workers are always among us. I think it's really interesting too, right? Like um, in many typical human trafficking, like very in NGOs that sometimes deal with human trafficking, the kind of typical discourses is like us versus them. Right. And I think it's so funny to me because I was like this us versus them is a not useful to when you actually try to work in solidarity with folks, just, you know, FYI. Um, Mm -hmm. but also, but also like this idea that like sex workers aren't human too, right? Whatever. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, like, it's so interesting, the discourses around that as well. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that when we talked earlier, you mentioned, um, a documentary that you were interviewed for, uh, about mental health and disability in the Asian American community. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit more about, um, what you discussed in the project or share any information? Yeah, um, actually, uh, that Professor Kelly Chong, um, sociology, University of Kansas, working on this wonderful documentary, um, talking about all of that. So it's going to be wonderful. Not sure when it's coming out, but it's going to be great. Um, In terms of like uh, mental health, again, like there's this just a massive underrepresentation of uh, practitioners who are Asian American that um, people like um, that people can have access to, right? Um, I don't think I've ever, I've just not had the ability to have an Asian American therapist, right? It's just that rare. Um, and I think to some extent too, like having somebody that looks like you, um, in a role like that is just so important because of the fact that, um, there's just some things that are just shortcuts, right? Like if you, I don't know if you've ever talked to a therapist or whatever, but sometimes it's just really useful to be able to talk about something without having to go into the history of sexism and racism in America. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. why these things are, or even have to justify that something happened to you because there have been very well-intentioned therapists that I've been to where I'm just like, they're like, so why is that? Why, why did you feel that was kind of, why did you feel uncomfortable? Or why was that like an, or why did you feel like that was kind of a act of racism or sexism or both? And I'm like, okay, 
I don't want to have to justify my oppression to you today. I'm lucky that it is not an issue anymore for me. I've had some really great practitioners, like, I've, you know, like a hashtag go to therapy, but like I've been able to be, to, you know, encounter great practitioners in the last several years that don't have that problem. But um, I think that stigma in the Asian American, uh, like stigma uh, against, you know, like stigma against, you know, mental health care, you know, and things like that you know, being able to have a practitioner that just already understands you would, I think, help with uh, help in general, right? Um, yeah, I, I think that was probably one of the things that I talked about the most. I also talked about some of the things that we'd already talked about, right? Like, what does it mean to be neurodivergent and Asian American? You know, what is that? What, why is that experience maybe a little bit different? So, yeah. So what's something Professor Kwasan mentioned that stuck out to you and why? Um, well, for me, it was um, um, surrounding like the, the idea of how hard it is to um, reintegrate into like um, other forms of labor after being involved in sex work, um, mm -hmm. especially in like the, the digital era where people have things like OnlyFans or um, like a digital footprint of their past, um, of their past work and uh, lots of employers just they they discriminate based on on a history like that. So I, I found that really interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I um, was super interested to hear about um, when she was a domestic violence advocate uh, because I like didn't find that in my research online, which um, was super interesting to hear about, and also that mm -hmm. like I was really impacted by her experiences in school. Um, with being like uh, held to the standard of being the model minority while also being uh, neurodivergent is mm -hmm. that was that was big for me too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like that it's was... hard enough to be neurodivergent. Like I can't imagine being um, held to like such high expectations, not only as like an Asian American but as a woman in in school. Mm -hmm. That's that's horrible. Definitely. Yeah, that definitely okay. that definitely had to make an impact on her. Um, the one thing that really stuck out to me was the fact that she she didn't have a professor that was Filipino or Asian American until she was in grad school. Like yeah. that, like K through 12 and first year, four years of college. Like, I mean, it's just that's, amazing. That's to 16 think years that of education with like, at the very least, like four teachers every year. I think that's yeah. Well, like, and, like, in high school, like, I don't know if you guys had this, but I had, like, eight different teachers. Yeah, and it you would know, change every, like, every quarter, so. Yeah, you know, I find so it's ridiculous. just, it's amazing that she, you know, and then being held to that expectation, I, I school just seemed a lot different. Uh, so going based off of her research, how does her research connect to some of the texts we've discussed in class? Um, Dirty Nails comes into my head almost immediately. Um, mm -hmm. Just kind of like the interplay between uh, MAGA minority myth and, and stereotypes with um, certain uh, groups and their respective like perceived work fields and how that ties into like sex work as well. I was going to say Dirty Nails and uh, again, like the podcast that we talked about just because she mentions like the standards being placed or not the standards, but the expectation um, 
of like hypersexualization and like hyperfemininity from Asian women and how that impacts like um, people's perceptions of the Asian American community as a whole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So out of everything we've talked about within the interview, what have you, what, what are you going to take away from it? I, I really, I guess, I think when she shared her experience about like volunteering and, and, and getting like a passion to work um, against like these societal ills in college, uh, that kind of, it was cool to hear another person's, um, I guess, fondness for that and like how that kind of grew in college. Cause I, I, I feel like I'm going through a similar, similar process. Yeah, I had a really similar um, thought, but I was really impressed by her um, working as a DB advocate and volunteering at like, um, uh, like volunteering at places like that because I like work at a homeless shelter at home. I do um, like support and housing coordination. Mm-hmm. And I like, that's something that really interests me and is really cool to me. And I really, I don't know, I'm looking forward to kind of figuring out how I can take uh, this like, these topics and like take them back home and take them to work and use them like later in life. <laughs> just to wrap it up, uh, we just wanted to say a big thank you to Professor Quezon for coming on and sharing with us. Um, we've all had a really good time recording this and thinking about it. Yeah, and then thank you everyone yeah, you for listening. Ah! <laughs>